Hiawatha Church? Dan, you got this perfectly right, by the way. Peter never does that. <laughs> I'm kind of OCD with this thing, this leg on this thing. And you guys can see that or not, but it's right over this outlet, and I need it to be right perfectly down the middle or else. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever mentioned that or not before, but I always twist it. But Dan just nailed it, man. <laughs> Peter never does that. All right, anyway, <laughs> made me laugh. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, uh, we always love um, just saying hello to and welcoming our visitors. So hopefully um, it's been a great morning for you already, and we, uh, we hope that the rest of the day goes well for you too. But thanks for being here and worshiping with us. Wherever you are, spiritually, Christian or not, glad you're here to, to learn and, um, or, and or to worship or uh, whatever got you here. Just glad you guys are with us. So uh, we are in the book of Acts right now, uh, sermon series-wise. We will be for the whole year, all of 2019, so a long way to go still. We're in Acts 9, verse 19. If you want to turn in a Bible or a phone app, that would be great, but this will all be on screen per the, per the usual. Uh, but today, uh, like Dan mentioned, kind of summarized it, but we are um, looking at Saul's kind of first ministry today. So uh, Acts is uh, a book about Jesus and the Acts of Jesus, really. That's where the book got its name. The Acts of the Church, the Acts of Jesus through the Church. This is after his resurrection, so post-death and resurrection, the birth of his church, how the church came into being, which really is a gathering, an in-gathering of lost sinners. And so the church literally linguistically means an in-gathering or a gathering of, of, of people back to God. And so the church does that physically, but spiritually it, it transpires when sinners like us just believe that Jesus came into the world to save them. And so the church is being born through the preaching of the church, the Holy Spirit's being given to indwell sinners and and kind of mark them and seal them. So it's not by the law or by good deeds that we're saved, but by the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And so that's been a big theme so far in the, in the book as well. But at this point in chapter 9, we're seeing a, a lot's been happening. It's kind of hard to summarize because so much has been happening. But we just read last week about the conversion of one of the main characters in Acts, whose name is Saul, who will also be called Paul uh, later in the book. At this point, it's just Saul, but he has kind of two names. He's also known as Paul. It says later, I think it's chapter 13, maybe 11, I forget where it is, but he's also known as Paul. And so whenever we refer to Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, many of the letters uh, the, to the churches in the New Testament, that's the, that's the same guy. But he was a, uh, a Jewish man who was a Pharisee, who was a religious leader, who was killing Christians and imprisoning them. But Jesus interrupted that. Uh, he was on the, on the road to Damascus, another town where there were Christians living he knew this, and he was going to imprison them, bind them up, and, and tear apart families and murder some of them potentially as well, or at least eventually there might have been capital punishment for some of these, uh, some of these individuals like Stephen in chapter 7. But basically, Jesus interrupts that, and he just says, now Saul, you are mine. You're the one that, I'm the one you were persecuting when you were persecuting my people, and, and now you are mine. I'm saving you. And then he led them to learn, he led him, Saul, to learn more about the gospel, about Jesus' death and resurrection, how that saved him, and how that was the whole point, and, and how he fulfilled all the promises of God in the Old Testament, and then to be, to be baptized, and to join other Christians in Damascus, and many other things as well. But today, we're going to look at Saul's first ministry. So last week was his conversion, how Jesus basically just took this Christian murderer and made him this uh, huge proponent of the faith, a Christian himself, but this apostle, this sent one, this pastor, this church planter, this leader. Uh, he was a terrorist, essentially, and now he is... Um, a saved, wrecked man by grace. We'll see that today. Uh, like all of us as Christians, wrecked by grace, moved by love. Uh, now he's preaching about this Jesus who showed him very undeserved love. And so we'll see that kind of play out here in the first few verses. But So today is part two in a lot of ways to last week if you're here, but if you weren't, uh, this still is kind of a standalone thing, and so you'll, you'll learn a lot hopefully. But the goal is to see the gospel in the story. 
So where is the gospel of Jesus Christ here? Per the usual, again, as we've been doing throughout this series, but it's always the question, where is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the character of God? What do we learn about the church and things like that? What it means to be saved? Uh, a whole slew of things. So we'll uh, break it down into three sections. In fact, today, I want to just read a section, then preach it, then another section, then preach it. So we're not going to read the whole thing to start. Uh, it's kind of a weird section. There's three related, but then again, not really related sections. And so um, it just caters well to doing this today. So Acts 19, or, sorry, sorry, 919b to 22 is the first section. So let's read that and fold it again. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus, referring to Saul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Christ means king or Messiah or anointed one. Uh, basically, referring, when, when Christ is referred to, well, Jesus is referred to as the Christ, it's meaning that he is the promised one. He's the one that God sent. I am righting all wrongs through this coming Messiah, this king, this Davidic king, who will come and bring peace and slay all the enemies of my people and usher in a new kind of eternal kingdom. And so Jesus is that one. All right, so the first section is, uh, basically, we're seeing Paul here. Um, immediately, it says, uh, interesting word, but it says he immediately preaches and is questioned by these Jews in these synagogues in this uh, town called Damascus. All right, so, so Saul, immediately after his conversion, we, we were talking about that, after seeing Jesus, after being shown grace by Jesus, after coming to understand the gospel, what it really was, and after putting his trust in it, after being baptized and spending time with the church, he preaches the gospel immediately. So he preaches the gospel right away, it, it says. And and many people like to say here, and I would 100% agree, that these are the actions of a man who has been forgiven much. Because remember last week, Jesus didn't threaten Saul. Saul's not operating out of fear here. He's thinking, I've been shown immense grace by the one I was formerly persecuting and rejecting and hating. I deserve so much worse but I was shown the complete opposite. These are the actions of a man who believes that, and who's operating out of that mindset. And so it's really quite endearing here to know that Saul's ministry begins because of love. This is the guy, again, who wrote half the New Testament. Many of you have read maybe all of his letters or some of his letters. You know some of his theology. You, you know this guy. This is where his ministry begins. He starts by preaching in synagogues in Damascus to other Jews, proving that Jesus is the Christ, and all of it begins because of love. It's born out of love, not obligation. That's huge. This actually speaks a lot to our experience, too, as Christians. We'll come back to some of that. But So hear your own story in this a little bit as well, but just glean here. These are the actions of a man who has been forgiven much and loved much and whose sin has been passed over. It's kind of like in marriage. Like I don't have to, um, been married for 17 years, I don't have to think about my vows to Aletha every single moment of every single day in order to love her. Like, I just do. Not that it's wrong to think about your vows. Actually, Aletha kind of uh, cross-stitched our vows and they hang, they're hanging up in our bedroom so we can see them. It's kind of a, a cool thing to always remember them. But, but I don't have to think about my vows to Aletha every single moment in order to love her. I, I just do. You know, there's no, like, 
oh, that's right, I vowed that, didn't I? Or, shoot, I signed that document, that marriage license. I'm contractually obligated to love her now or something, right? There, there's not that kind of thinking on a regular basis. It's the same here with Saul. He's been loved to hell and back, and it shows in the immediacy of his preaching and also the content of his preaching. It tells us the nature of it as well when it says that he preaches that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's proving to these Jews that he is the King. He's the Son of God. He is the Christ. He's the one in the line of David, speaking in Old Testament terms, who was to come and fulfill all that he did, but heighten it and allow it to reign and kind of uh, progress uh, forever and ever and ever for all of those who would have faith in him. So salvation, essentially. So this tells us, though, the fact that it, he, he leads with this, at least, that he is, Jesus is the Son of God. This tells us that he's preaching the gospel, right? He's preaching the gospel proper because the gospel has to do with Jesus' vicarious death and his substitutionary work for us on the cross as God's Son. So his preaching here is not do more to the Jews, to the people who are listening to him. His sermon is not do more, but rather it's a pronouncement. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is here to rescue us. And he's proving that Jesus was the Christ in all of that. So the sermon's not do more, but the sermon is Jesus has done more for us. So believe in that. See that in the Bible. See that in my story, my testimony. See that in the oral tradition of Jesus' teachings and, and the historical reality of his crucifixion and resurrection that he's been pushing and proclaiming. Believe in that and you will be saved. This is not an ethical class. There's no morality here. This is a pronouncement. That's good preaching. And actually, it's the core of good evangelism as well. It's something we can all learn from. If our evangelism does not consist of heralding the fact that Jesus is alive, it's not Christian evangelism or preaching, right? It's, it's just, it might be okay. It might not be the worst of things, but it depends on what we're saying. But it's not like, it's not preaching. It's not evangelism. We have to pronounce that the tomb is empty. We have to say that Jesus is alive. The resurrection has to have happened for death to be overcome, right? And to prove that what Jesus did on Good Friday actually accomplished something, that it worked. And so to prove that he was the king, the Christ, I mean, that's a great paradigm here. If there's something to copy at all, actually, in the, in the passage, it's that. The rest of this actually has very little to do with us. All right, so that's the first piece. The second section is verses 23 to 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. All right, so that's the second section, lowered through a wall in a basket. So we're going to basically kind of answer these questions, what in the world does that mean, and then why is this happening? So why, why the detail here? So first on a broad level, we'll talk about the broad first, it's kind of a basic thing we see here in the big picture, then we'll move to um, some specifics that have to do with walls and baskets and, and things like that. So first on a broad level, what this tells us, this escape this lowering by the disciples in a basket through a, a wall or a window in a wall out kind of the back in, in order for him to escape. What, what this tells us is God had a particular plan and sort of a timeline here, but a particular plan for Saul's life. Because remember what Jesus said last week to Ananias about Saul? For you guys that were here about that? Or for, for that, do you remember what Jesus said about Saul? I will show him how much he must, what? 
suffer for my name, right? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, which, which means, what Jesus means by that is that apostolic ministry, pastoral ministry, comes with suffering, and in that suffering, apostles or pastors, and all Christians participate in this, of course, as well, but in that type of suffering, they resemble Christ. They, they point to Jesus, and they resemble what he does for us on the cross. But, but remember when Jesus said that? So clearly with this passage, is kind of a, a complement to it and a counterpart, a part two, clearly here what we're seeing is, yes, that's still the plan, but not today. Yes, that's still the plan, but not yet. Because he's literally being saved from death here. This reminded me of the, the timeliness of Jesus' death as well. In fact, the way that Luke writes this sounds a lot like things that happened to Jesus. Maybe you kind of heard that in the way that Luke was writing, if you've read the Gospels before. How Jesus' death then was orchestrated and only allowed by God at the proper time. And so here's one example of the many that there are in the Gospels. But Luke, this is the guy who wrote Acts as well, so same author here. Luke in 4, 29 to 30 says, They got up, they drove Jesus out of the town, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him over the cliff. But Jesus passed through the crowd and just went on his way. So it's kind of weird, right? I mean, we don't really know how that looked and what, and what happened, but it's just sort of like, what, did that, what does that mean? They bound him up, they carried him to the hill, they're getting ready to throw him over, and then oh, he just kind of walked away. He passed through the crowd, he disappeared, you know, and they're like, well, where did he go? And so what, the, what this tells us is, things like this tell us is, that Jesus' death, eventual death, which came much later, was not an accident. Because why didn't he just do this at the foot of the cross? at his arrest, at his trial, right? He's able to miraculously sort of disappear and pass through things. And because he's the son of God as well, not just a human being, he's able to pass through crowds. And, and it wasn't until it was the proper time that he was fully arrested and, and flogged and, and condemned and crucified, all right? And so what this tells us then is Jesus's death was not an accident, but a divine plan to save the world from its sins. And it's important that it, his death, happened in a particular way against the backdrop of passages like Luke 4 at a particular time to show us that Jesus' death was given. It was he gave up his death rather than it being taken from him. That's what passages like this show us. And, and Saul's passage, actually in Acts 9, also tells the same story. It reminds us of places like Luke 4, that in God's eyes and in his plan, he has a plan for the suffering and death of his apostles, Jesus being the primary one. And so Saul's similar experiences point us back to this idea that Jesus gave up his life. He offered it. It was not taken from him. He's not an accidental martyr. He orchestrated the entire thing. And at any point... He could have just walked away from it like this. But he didn't for you, and he didn't for me. He went the full measure uh, in order to give up his life and taste death so we might escape from it. We'll see more of that here in the next section. All right, so that, that's the broad level. Uh, on the more specific level here, though, uh, we, we see more because this is not just generally about Saul being saved from death from the Jews' plot here against him. But it's about this strange detail of being lowered through a wall in a basket. 
right? So um, the next question I want to ask and answer is, why this added detail? And usually detail like this is a sign that the author is trying to say something theological. Because why did he have to do this, right? Why couldn't he just said, and they, they allowed him to escape, or they showed him a back entrance? Why the mention of the wall? Why in a wall? Why through a window? Why a basket? All right, so if we ask the question then, like this is a great hermeneutical or interpretational kind of encouragement or principle to follow as you read your Bibles yourselves or in your community groups. But if we ask the question, this is an odd passage, but where else in the Bible do we see this? You actually see it oddly in a number of places. And so I'm going to look at one of them, a couple of them actually, well, one primarily, uh, there are others in the Old Testament as well uh, that will move us uh, to Christ and then kind of through that to um, the way that Paul writes about this in one of his letters. All right, so if we ask that question, it actually points us back directly to Joshua 2.15. Actually, David has an experience like this as well. We're not going to look at that today. Uh, but Joshua, as one of the spies in the land, along with Caleb, has um, this experience. And so in Joshua 2.15, where it says that the spies of Israel who were spying on the land hid in Rahab the prostitute's home. And there they were lowered by Rahab through a window in the wall to escape from the Jerichoans who became aware of their presence. All right, so an odd story, uh, but one that Luke is clearly referencing and God is allowing to transpire here in Acts to kind of be relived out and to point us back to uh, this event here. So, so why is Luke doing that? Why is God doing this? Why, why is there this connection between Saul's story with, with this one is kind of the big, the big question. It's one thing to see the connection. It's another thing to ask, what's the theology behind the connection? That's the more important an- a question first, but then, but then answer. And the simple answer, the, more, this is the, the first answer is more basic and we'll, we'll go deeper, but the simple answer is theologically, we're supposed to see that this Old Testament Joshua-related pattern of salvations being repeated now through Jesus and Saul's experiences. And for those of you who know about this story in the Old Testament in Joshua of when the spies spied on the land, you know it was a part of a greater story of redemption and salvation and deliverance that began with the exodus and ended with land conquest and this gift of land that God was giving to his people. So, so what does that tell us then? If If Joshua 2 is a sign, is kind of a major kind of sign of of God endorsing that or or kind of accompanies all of these stories together, then how does that relate to to Acts Acts 9, essentially, is the the additional question. What does this tell us? Subtly, but but intentionally. And it basically tells us this. We've talked a lot about this before already, even in this series. It tells us that another version of these events that happened beforehand are happening again. So that another exodus is happening now. But it's not from the Egyptians. It's this, this time it's from our sin that enslaves us. It tells us that land is being given again. Like God gave physical land to Israel in the Old Testament. But this time it's not a physical chunk of land off the eastern Mediterranean. This time it's a spiritual new Eden or garden-like dwelling where God himself is. And so separation from God is being overcome. And it reminds us how Jesus talks about himself as being like land in the Gospels. He's the new version of the promised land himself in offering his body for people. And it also tells us conquest is being granted again of of the land, but not over physical armies this time, this time over spiritual armies of dark angels and even death itself. And, And so 
What Luke is doing here then by writing the story in this way and including this detail, what God is ultimately doing through the pen of Luke by including another Joshua-like basket lowering in the wall, sort of through the window type escape, is saying basically, Psst, hey, you guys, readers, Israelites, Jews, Gentiles becoming Christians, all readers for all time of Acts 9, God is conquering again. He's spying out your sin He's getting ready to destroy it. In fact, he already has. There is a new way of escape from your sins. And, so, and, and, it's, the, and it's the way of Christ. It's the way of the gospel. It's the way of his, of his, uh, of his blood. And so Luke is, is subtly suggesting this. Actually, not just subtle, but, but quite directly with the detail he includes. All right? On another level, though, this points us back to Jesus himself who, like Saul here, passed through walls at one point after his resurrection. So in John 20, it says, after his resurrection, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so this is the day he rose from the dead, actually, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So he passed through a locked door, he passed through walls. And the point to this, there's a lot going on here in John 20 we can't touch on today, but, but the point here, linking this with Acts 9, is that God's kingdom, and Joshua too, uh, God's kingdom just has this habit of being associated with the symbol of passing through walls over and over and over again. Which, of course, strikes to the reality of the matter, right? When Jesus dies for us, he breaks down the wall of separation between us and God, literally. The veil in the temple that separated God and people was torn at the moment of Jesus' body being torn and when his heart stopped beating because his body was that veil. It was essentially the, the, the way of access when, when it shed its blood, when it, when it died for us. So access is given. So, so Saul's experiences here is passing through a wall as a Christ figure and as one who was like becoming, in a sense, the apostle outside of Christ, the apostle of Christ, his experiences here prefigure what the essence of his gospel preaching would later be. So later in his ministry, after Paul planted a church in Ephesus, he writes back to this church, and in chapter 2, he uses similar type of wall language to talk about the gospel. He says that Jesus has come... And when he came and died for us on the cross, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility and he gave us access to God or access to the Father. And so he's talking very clearly about the gospel, but he uses this passing through wall imagery, this wall destroying imagery that the gospel um, really gets at, at the heart of and, and vice versa. The wall destroying imagery is at the heart of the, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. So we have that layer to it as well. But there's one more, and that is the theme of the high and mighty becoming low. So in other words, uh, and going back to Saul for a second here, Saul was a high religious leader. He was an official of high regard. He was, uh, based off his own description of himself in Philippians 3, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's like pastor of pastors. He's, he's the highest of the high in terms of what it meant to be a spiritual leader of, of the day. And now he's being pursued by others and lowered through a wall in a basket, almost like a baby in an infant car seat. 
You know, so he goes from the highest of places. Everyone's almost worshiping him. Everyone's looking up to him. Everyone wants to be him. He the highest of places as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And now he's being treated like a baby in a basket, being lowered through a window because he can't save himself. See the big distinction? It was such a pivotal moment for Paul that he actually alludes to this in one of his letters to the churches in 2 Corinthians 11. And the entire point of him mentioning it was to get at the theme of weakness. He's saying, I am a weak man and I'm bragging about it. He wants to boast in how weak he is so Christ would get stronger and bigger. So let me, let me just read it for you here. In 2 Corinthians 11, 30 to 33, Saul speaking or Paul speaking, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, my incompetence, my failure. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. And here's the, the story. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. All right, so, so again, for Paul here, basically, he's referencing this story because being lowered in a basket like a baby was humbling for him. It showed his weakness. Which on one level, he's saying here, like he does in all of his letters, it's not about us, it's not about me. It's about Jesus saving us by grace, not about our works. And so he references this story. I mean, it's important that the story in Acts 9 didn't go. There was this plot of the Jews against Saul. He heard about it. Then he strapped on his armor and beat them all down with his bare hands. It's the opposite of that, right? It's the complete opposite. Treated like an infant, not in a condescending manner, but feeling like that, Versus Saul beat them with his own hands and then flexed for a picture, you know, or something like that. It's significant that that's not the story because what would that suggest about salvation? What would it suggest about, about apostolic ministry and about Christianity? This guy wrote half the New Testament. What if he was like that? It would suggest that you can destroy your own sin. You can fix your own problems if you try hard enough. Be a good person. Slay it. Fight back darkness yourself. Slay the giants in your life. That's what it would suggest, but that's the antithesis, the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is we were lowered through a window in a basket, and, and Jesus was crucified you know, for us, and, and we're saved by that because we're weak. And so Paul's saying, I'm boasting. I'm boasting in this. All right, so that, that's one layer to this. On another layer, l- looking at, again, Shifting lenses here a bit, so this is kind of Saul as a person lens we've just been talking about. Shifting lenses to seeing Saul as a picture of Christ, which we've already done today, and and Luke is keen on this in the book of Acts, he already has been. But shifting lenses on another level, this image gets us to this core aspect of the gospel, which is the high and glorious Christ being lowered to become human, to become a baby himself to be born into the world as an infant, slobbering everywhere and crying and, and, and soiling diapers, then growing up and becoming like us because he, he was human, fully human, in order to, to die for us. And so, but that condescension of the Son of God had to happen first. 
in order for the gospel to transpire. So what I mean, what I mean is this, to use more explicitly biblical language. Hebrews 2.9 says, Jesus was made for a little while lower, there's the word, lower than the angels. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, the, the, the rationale for him becoming human is so he could die as a human for us. If Jesus didn't become human, he couldn't die for humans. He couldn't taste death. God can't die. But if God became a human, then God can die. And that's what happened in Christ. God's Son, the Son of God, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, condescended. He lowered himself. He became lower than the angels so that he might die for us. He might benefit us with his death. That's the core of Christianity. Jesus dies for us in our place. And so in a lot of ways, going back to this section, this is the most important part because it shows us that the way that we have all the things previously mentioned, the way that we have a new exodus the way, from our sin, the way we have a new land uh, of, of God's presence, the way we have access to him, the way we have a new Eden, the way we have victory over our sins, over our shame, over our guilt, over death, the way that Jesus passes through walls to us, the way he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God, the way he does all of that is through his lowering. It's through his suffering. It's through him becoming a human to die for us. It's his condescension. It's his death. Though he was lowered in humanity, I mean, to apply some of this language in Acts 9 to Jesus, Though he was lowered in his humanity, there was no lowering through a window for Jesus on Good Friday, was there? There was no lowering or escape for Jesus on Good Friday. There was no lowering in a basket. There was no way out the back door. Instead, he took on death. He took on the punishment. When he was being pursued by people, there was no Saul-like experience here, right? Even though we've been saying he was condescended and lowered in his humanity, there was no, like, secondary lowering. There was no physical one. There was no escape. What this says is Jesus tasted death for us that we might escape it. All right, and here's the third section, Acts 9, 23 to 25. Actually, no, that's the wrong reference. I forgot to change the reference. <laughs> it's 26 to 31. All right, the rest of the passage. Acts 9, verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right, here's the, the final piece here. There's a lot going on in this passage. Um, again, I'm acknowledging that because I'm picking out one thing here, but there's uh, tons of great stuff. Here's the, here's the thing I think that's most important because we see him only a few places in, in Acts. It's Barnabas. So the third thing I want to talk about here today is Barnabas playing the role of advocate. So Barnabas as, Barnabas as advocate. 
So the role that Barnabas plays here in helping assimilate Paul into the family of believers. So just, just so it's clear what, what just happened here is the existing disciples and, and the existing the brothers, the, the apostles, are hearing about this, but they're afraid because it's the guy who was murdering Christians like yesterday. And so Barnabas, who kind of has a foot in both camps, like he's, he's seen Saul kind of do his thing in Damascus. He's seen him kind of genuinely preach the gospel. But Barnabas also knows the apostles well. What's happening here is Barnabas is serving as an advocate for Saul, right? He's, it says he brings him to the, to the brothers, the, the apostles, the disciples, and he advocates. He says this is, he declares them, it says, how, how on the road, this is a Jesus guy. He's one of us. He's had a conversion experience just like us. We're, we're brothers with him now. And so he, um, he argues for him, basically, and, and supports him. Which is really a powerful thing. If you guys have ever been advocated before, before uh, by, or for, by anyone else before, like, you know how this feels. Uh, there, there's something powerful about someone else saying something positive about us, maybe towards a group of people that are otherwise against us or attacking us or not accepting us or letting us in. When someone advocates for us on that level versus that, that advocacy or that kind of, um, that thing about us coming from us, it's powerful, right? It's, it's a demonstration of love. And it's humbling because it's not coming from us, but it's, uh, it, it affects the relationship between us and the advocate on a very high level and the group that we're being accepted into because of that advocacy. All right, so, so here um, on screen here, this is, here's where this idea is heightened theologically in Acts 9. For Saul, and I'm just summarizing, but put in different words. For Saul, reconciliation with and acceptance into the family of God came through an advocate, Barnabas. That, that's like the entire point, really, of why Luke's writing this. He could have just said, and then he went and hung out with the disciples and the apostles, but he, it's important for him to say the way into acceptance with the family of God was the advocacy of Barnabas, this other figure, not himself, someone objective to him. And here's the theology. It's the same with us and Jesus. Acceptance into God's family comes through the advocacy of one who would die in our place, rise again, put his arm around us and say, he's okay, he's with me. She's okay, she's with me. 1 John 2.1 clearly says about Jesus this exact same thing. We have, church, an advocate with God the Father. It's God the Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He advocates for us. And so this is the gospel confidence that we have. I'm speaking to those of you who are Christians now for, for a second, but if you're not yet, this is the confidence you can have when you become a believer. It's a confidence based on God's grace, but it's a confidence sort of drilled, anchored into the advocacy of, of Christ. And here's what it is. This is the confidence we have before God. The righteous judge of all things that we have sinned against. This is the confidence we can have as sinners before, before God. And that is, the Father's one and only Son, whom he loves deeply with a bigger love than any of us can ever imagine, he's the one who advocates for us. Not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of his death and resurrection and the love that he and the Father have for one another. This is why it's important in the Gospels when you see Jesus say, I have a love for the Father and the Father loves me. 
I, God the Son, have a love for the Father, and God the Father has a love for me, the Son. This is, there's a lot of theology there and a lot more than what I'm about to say, but in part, this bolsters the idea of advocacy. Because if, if God loves the Son that deeply, a bigger love than any of us have ever imagined or experienced, and that's the Son that puts his arm around you and says, it's okay, Father, he's with me, he's good. That's the kind of confidence we can have now for living, for hope, for joy. And on the day that we sang about just a second ago when Jesus comes back and judges the world, and there will be a reckoning, there will be a judgment, there will be the wrath of God poured out upon those who are not his people. But for his church, there will be a blood covering, there will be a passing over, there will be an acceptance, there will be an advocate standing with us, saying it's because of me. You know, so, so, so again, this is not flattery. The advocacy is not saying, uh, Father, they've done a lot of good, so accept them. It's not flattery, it's grace. It's saying, rather, he's with me, he's okay. So we're accepted based off of our association with the advocate. Not based off of good works, but based off our association with the advocate himself. And, and again, this is... This is why Christians, uh, well, we should if, if we don't, uh, but this is why we, we love Christmas so much. The fact that Jesus became human allows all this to take place. If, Christmas did, if, if God didn't become human, there's no advocacy. There's no way this can happen because there's no way that Jesus would have a foot in two camps. He's the perfect advocate because he's divine, he's God's son, and he's human, right? He can advocate as a human for us. There's no way this advocacy could happen. He couldn't die as a human for us, but he also couldn't advocate. He has a foot in both camps. You see this theme a lot in the Bible, actually. Like, think about Joshua, or sorry, um, Joseph and Daniel and Esther. They were all royalty, but they were all Jewish at the same time. They were royalty with the other nations they were a part of, whether it's the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Persians but they were also Jewish. And so when they advocated, when they brought other Jews, other of God's people in to, to those uh, other pagan nations, it was like, it was because of they had a foot in both camps. And in that, they're all Christ figures. Esther, Daniel, and Joseph. They are royalty. They're Egyptian. They are these other, they're, they're kind of like half these other kingdoms. And it's, and it's the same with Christ. He's royalty. He's the son of God. And he's just like you. Just like you. Isn't that amazing? It's almost impossible to understand, right? But this is, good. this is Christian theology. This is the incarnation. God incarnated himself into human flesh so he could die for us and also advocate on, on this level. And so when you read about Barnabas here, guys, like, let me just let me ask it in the form of a question. What if Barnabas here is a picture of Christ to you? What if Jesus is like him but better? Isn't that an amazing picture of our Savior? See, all of a sudden, he's not, and I'm, I'm speaking to those of you who know, you guys, a lot of you know this, but I'm talking on an everyday basis, not just at your conversion. What if every day, Jesus is, as you're sinning or doubting or rejecting him or steeped in shame or guilt, whatever it is, as you're doing that, what if his posture towards you is still, he's with me, she's with me? If Barnabas, who's a sinner and who's evil, is like this towards a guy named Saul, how much more is Jesus towards you and me? This is what he's like. 
John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is why it's important to see this Jesus-centered theology in, in places, unsuspecting places, like Acts 9. So we have the right image of Jesus in our mind. He's not a condemner when you screw up. He's the one who bleeds for you instead. He's the one who dies for you and the one who actively advocates. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? If you've had an advocate in your life, someone who loves you, maybe this is consistent, you can understand this. If you haven't, then it might be harder. But what I'm saying to you is you do have an advocate. You have someone who deeply cares about you on that level and who goes to bat for you. Who goes to bat for you. It's Jesus, God's son. It's God himself who goes to bat for you. And not just goes to bat for you, but who fights all your battles and who, who dies for your sins. And he never tires of it, by the way. He never tires of it. Every single day of your life and mine, that is his posture towards us through his death and resurrection. So just to wrap this up, um, what I want to encourage you guys to do, and we've, we've done a lot of like what I call diamond twisting. There's a lot of facets to passages, like there are many facets of a diamond. And so a lot of times preaching and, and just reading ourselves these things, like we're, we're kind of like we're twisting that diamond in the light and we're seeing, I've read this 20 times, but I've never quite gotten that angle yet, you know? It's a new facet on a particular passage or a person or, or a doctrine. So we've done a lot of that today. What, what I want to leave you with, though, is um, we've seen Saul as a Christ figure, but also a picture of us. Think about afresh, simply seeing Saul in this story as a picture of you. All right? In other words, Saul is saved at the hands of another on multiple occasions, right? Barnabas' hand around his shoulder who brought him to the apostles to be accepted, but also at the hands of the disciples who lowered him through a wall in the basket at the end of a rope. Saved at the hands of someone objective to him. Not saved, decidedly not saved at his own hands, right? We've seen this theme come up time and time again in Acts. The hands of another have saved. This is, what, what Acts, this is the theology of Acts. Saul is saved at the hands of another. And, and whether it's Barnabas or the disciples, both of them to Saul and to us are pictures of Jesus. We are saved at the hands of Christ, the Son of God, which is the, the core of Saul's preaching here, right? When he says Jesus is the Son of God. That's who we're saved by. And just last little bit of commentary. Um, it's a great weird image to be lowered in a basket um, this is what I was thinking this week. None of us, those of you who call Hiawatha home here too, we, when we talk about community, uh, what it means to be a believer, uh, think about it this way. None of us in Christ have war stories we can boast in. None of us in Christ have war stories we can boast in. Here's what I mean. We're all sitting around boasting in our weaknesses telling stories about how Jesus lowered us through a window in a basket, but then at the last moment was captured instead of us and crucified. And we cry and we laugh and we tell stories of his greatness who gave it all for us and we love each other. We don't compete with one another because 
we've all been lowered in a basket, helpless, through a wall and a window. Saved by grace, not by a speck of what we've done for him. So no war stories, just baskets and a Christ to glory in. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're not yet in this room, please do join us. It really is the best place to be. And this is a vision for the church that we fall short of at Hiawatha all the time because we're sinners, but this is what it can be and and what it does look like sometimes. But look, to you, all of you, Christian or not, to me, he really does love us. He really does. And so let's sing and respond uh, accordingly. Let me pray first, though. God, thank you for um, this passage. It's a great one. Uh, It's very humbling. The reality is, uh, before you, we have nothing to boast in. We have done nothing good. We have no resume, no crown, uh, no stone etched with our amazingness, no sculpture, no statue of ourselves. We have nothing. All we have is a story about how we've been saved at the hands of another. We have been lowered through a wall, through a basket, provided a way of escape that we didn't even know was there. We have nothing to boast in. We have no war stories. All we have is love. All we have is peace. All we have is a non-competitive posture towards other Christians because what in the world do we have to boast in if all of us have the exact same story of at the same time being lowered through a wall, through a window, out the back, provided escape through the blood of one who died for us even though we deserved it, shown immense grace and favor though we deserve the opposite. Gospel is a sweet thing. It's extremely humbling. Help us as a church like Paul to boast in our weaknesses, to brag about how messy we are, to brag about how weak we are so you get the fame and people can't confuse the gospel with our efforts and works and wisdom is what saves us. Instead, it is the one who has done so much for us, uh, Jesus Christ, who interrupted us when we weren't looking for him, who invaded our hearts when we weren't wanting him. But captivated us and and drew us away. So Jesus, I pray for more of that. Give us more of the Spirit. Transform us. uh, Make us new. And um, yeah, help our church to mature and to grow up into the head, which is Christ, as as your word talks about, uh, more and more and more. And add to the, as we see in Acts, add to our number. We pray, add to our number by way of conversion. Save more people, God, and um, do it through us, if you will. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Whenever you're ready, please stand and respond with us.